You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to Fantastic Wonderful, episode 77 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks. With me is managing editor Neil Hughes, editor-in-chief of Apple Insider. And this is the Apple Insider Podcast, where we discuss everything about iPhone, iPad, and anything Apple-related. I want to start off by talking about a giveaway and Jamstick is partnering with Apple Insider this week to give readers the chance to win one of three portable smart guitars complete with a custom carrying case valued at $349.99 US dollars. Uh, this is a great product. I reviewed this product at Apple Insider and loved it. If you want to learn how to play guitar, if you already know how to play guitar and want to have a MIDI synthesizer essentially so you can play a, a little bit of, of uh, different sounds, keyboard sounds, trumpet sounds, things like that, with the instrument you already know, this is a great way to do it. The Jamstick Plus uses Bluetooth and uh, is is a rich experience. You know, it's got applications that teach you how to get familiar with what the guitar plays like. At the same time, it's not a guitar replacement because it's only a five-fret instrument, but that's okay. It's a fantastic way, and, and, and not, not a guitar replacement, but an excellent way to begin. So three lucky winners will receive a Jamstick Plus portable smart guitar and custom carrying case in black. Uh, the giveaway is open to U.S. residents 18 and older and ends at midnight Eastern time on July 18th. Winners will be announced on the 19th, so please check back to see if you won, and the link will be in the show notes. I, I got to say, I really like the Jamstick Plus. Yeah, it looks like a good, pretty cool product. I, you know, when I reviewed it on our site, um, I used it, my daughter used it, and she got really good at it. I like the idea of a super portable uh, instrument guitar, too, because, you know, if you're traveling somewhere and you like to play just in your downtime, um, you obviously can't bring a giant guitar with you, so. You can take a giant guitar on the plane, but it's an annoyance. Yeah. And how many stories have we seen about, pe- you know, United destroys guitars? Right. Right? United breaks guitars, the YouTube video. Uh, it, it happens all the time. There are on Jamstick's Twitter feed plenty of people who use this in the airport. You know, you're sitting down at the airport waiting at your gate for an hour to board. You pull it out and play a little bit. Play, there are people playing it in the seats with the tray table up. Yeah, it's cool. It is It is a cool experience. So, Neil, you wrote a story. And it was one of our featured stories about the emergency SOS feature inside watchOS 3. Mm-hmm. Now, I like watchOS 3. Tell me about this this feature. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, the side button, uh, we've talked a little bit before about the dock that you can access with it. Um, and previously, you hold the side button in order to uh, turn off the watch in case you needed to you know, power it off completely. But now when you hold it down for six seconds, you get two more options. You get a slide over for medical ID. Uh, which if you were to have some sort of an emergency and maybe need to share information or uh, unfortunately if you were unconscious uh, and needed to have medical personnel access information, that would be an easy way for them to check uh, any data that you have saved in the health app on your phone, like your blood type, whether you're an organ donor, any allergies, medications you're on, that kind of crucial information that uh, could be important in in a moment's notice. Um, and then the other feature that they have is uh, a emergency SOS is what it's called. It allows you to uh, to place a call to emergency services in the event that uh, uh, something happens to you. So similar to a product like Life Alert, where um, you maybe fall down and can't access the phone or something like that. So therefore, you just hold down the side button, slide over on emergency SOS, and what it does is – it will call uh, either over cellular if you're connected to your phone or Wi-Fi if your phone isn't available, uh, 911 or whatever is applicable in your region. And also if you have emergency contacts set up, it will send them a text message letting you know or letting them know that you have placed a call to emergency services. And then it starts sharing your location with that person. Um, and they will get continuous updates about your location. So maybe let's say an ambulance came and picked you up and took you to the hospital, but you were unable to pass that information along to a loved one. Uh, they would be able to track and see where you were. Um, and it'll even, uh, if you have uh, location services disabled on your watch or your phone, it will temporarily turn on location services in the event of an emergency in order to send that information to loved ones that you have set on there as a contact. So I think this is a really um, uh, cool feature that uh, could be, a, a big seller, especially someone who has health issues or might be older or something, 
Um, uh, like I said, Life Alert is one of those products that's out there that does something similar to this, but um, this is obviously a feature on a product that does much more than that and expands the capabilities of the Apple Watch. But even more interestingly than that is I think this is kind of hinting towards this inevitable release of a LTE cellular connected Apple Watch that doesn't really need your phone to do this kind of stuff. Absolutely. And I bet you back in February that the Apple Watch would come with a, uh, a virtual SIM. But you think it's going to happen as soon as this year? I, I At the time, my bet was for the fall, and I'm going to stand by that for now. I would be surprised if it comes out this year. Not, not too surprised, but um, there are certainly battery life considerations. One of the interesting things with watchOS 3, especially with apps staying open in the background, is Apple was very conservative with uh, trying to maximize battery life when the product first launched. But now they're realizing, you know, through their own data and testing that a lot of people are putting their watch on the charger with like 50, 40% left in, of the battery. So now they're doing things like running, you know, in the background a little longer um, and allowing the watch to do a little bit more than it was before because, and it has to use more power in return. Now, the rumor is that this year's Apple Watch upgrade is going to have the same general form factor as uh, the previous one from a year and a half ago. So if you take the logic of uh, what they do in an iPhone where all the parts inside keep shrinking except for the battery, which keeps growing, and you took the same basic look of the Apple Watch and you included a virtual SIM in there and then maybe a smaller S2 processor that was not only more efficient and faster but smaller, that might, that might allow more space for a battery, which could then allow the watch to operate a little bit longer when it uses cellular radio or GPS. The problem is cellular radio and GPS are real major battery drains. And that is why I don't know if there's going to be an LTE-capable slash GPS model this year, just because of the issues related to battery. I mean, literally, if you were to use you know GPS on an Apple Watch with the way it is right now, you'd probably get, what, an hour, maybe two of uptime before the thing died? And I can't see Apple releasing a product like that without making some sort of uh, something to, to, to make it a little more functional. Well, you, you'd want it to be contextual sensitive so that it only turns on the GPS when you absolutely need it. Right. And, you know, it'll say, you know, if you're going to exercise, use GPS, but otherwise turn it off, charge it when you go home and shower or something. Uh, you know, there's also talking of um, uh, smart bands that might extend the battery life, stuff like that. So there are clever ways that Apple could go about adding it and doing it. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens later this year, but certainly this emergency SOS feature is something that would be even more valuable with an integrated LTE radio. Yeah, what I want to say about the this medical alert feature is that it, it, it's great that it's in the phone and it's great that it's in the watch, but if you have a medical condition, consider using the old traditional medical alert bracelet with the the actual information engraved on it. Right. You know, if if you're actually in an emergency and you actually have conditions that rate having a medical alert in the first place, you want the responders to be able to find it in the easiest, most accessible way possible, and and that's just going to be the bracelet you're wearing. Yeah, um, you know, the medical ID feature has been in on the iPhone since iOS 8, and there is an ability to make the medical ID accessible from the lock screen on your phone without unlocking the phone. But the question becomes how many first responders and medical professionals actually know how to access that information or would look to access that information. Um, and then right. fumbling it, it, through your pocket for your phone and doing that versus looking at the thing on your arm. Right. And and then, you know, for example, with Watch OS 3, it's like, well, you could hold the side button, see the medical ID that it may not provide you the information you wanted. You just wasted how much time that could be spent, you know, treating the patient or doing something. So this is something where It'll take a while, and as it becomes more ubiquitous, it might be uh, extremely valuable down the road. In the next couple of years, it'd be hard to have medical professionals, you know, be that aware or have that much ability or time. But it's it's a good thing. I mean, it, the, no one could complain that this is being featured on the product. It's a good thing, regardless. If it saves one life, then it was worth the effort that Apple put oh, into I it. Totally want it. I absolutely like it. I want more people to be aware of it. At the same time, I, I just you know, if if you have a condition, if you need yeah. to, to yeah. You know, I think the make it simple. I think the SOS feature will be more of a lifesaver for people than medical yes. ID, just because I can't see a first responder holding down the side button on your Apple Watch to see if you have your medical ID data on there. That doesn't seem likely to me. 
but I, someone I falling down and maybe not being able to reach the phone and having emergency SOS on there, that's definitely a feature that I could see being used. And I think that's one of those things that, you know, come this time next year, there's going to be a media story, you know, uh, once every couple months, you know, local news, someone's life saved by an Apple Watch, that kind of good publicity that Apple gets like with the Find My iPhone stuff where, you know, someone's phone gets lost and they track it down and that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that, uh, that has led well, we to many the, stories. We had a story about Apple Watch last year that saved a kid's life, right? There was, right. He, he was wearing it and his heart rate was way outside the norm for him. Yeah. And because he observed that, he, he sought treatment in time. And that's the kind of stuff that is going to sell a lot of Apple Watches and is brilliant marketing without actually marketing. It's just the product working as intended. Uh, people hear those kind of stories and it makes them intrigued in the product and makes them want to buy it. Totally. I want to change gears completely. Well, actually, before I do that, you know, I, I, I had a listener talk to me this, this week, and he was talking about how he really wants the GPS feature. I know you alluded to it. Uh, his, his contention is that if it doesn't have GPS soon, that, that he's going to bail out to uh, a TomTom or a Garmin watch that does. I You're really want GPS. I really want GPS. And the way that things work right now kind of drives me nuts to the point that I don't even bother um, initiating my run on my watch. Now, that's partially re- as a result of the third-party app situation on watchOS, but also uh, I use RunKeeper, and I have something like 400 r- logged runs on RunKeeper. So I would rather not, you know, I want to keep adding to that log of years. You're you're in a data silo and you don't want to lose your data silo. And so the RunKeeper app on Apple Watch, uh, I love RunKeeper, but the app on Apple Watch is abysmal. It crashes. uh, It has this weird thing. We've talked about it before where if I start the run on my phone and then go to my watch, it's not showing up properly. And then I'll try to start on the watch and then it's paused it on the phone. It's kind of a nightmare. Um, It just doesn't work very well. I I tried for a while last year just running with uh, my watch and no phone where it just kind of guesstimates your running pace and distance. It actually wasn't that bad. Um, and I used a app called RunGap, which would then export data from Apple Health to RunKeeper. Um, and that was good. But again, it wasn't giving me super accurate pace and distance. It was just estimating. Um, so, so you need to go back and use RunKeeper on Pebble, basically. I don't use. I don't have my Pebble anymore. Uh, it was lost to the TSA years ago. Um, you, you, they, what they claimed it from you? No, it was left in a bin at a security uh. thing, and I tr- called and tried to get it back. But anyhow, I just run with my. I run with my watch on me, but I use it more for music controls. I have my phone on my arm. I initiate the run on RunKeeper on my arm, and then when I'm done, I take it off my armband and stop it with RunKeeper, and it works fine. I would much rather be able to do it all from my watch. I'm hoping that with watchOS 3 and subsequent updates to RunKeeper, it all starts working properly. But one interesting thing to think is, since you mentioned Pebble, they have an upcoming product that's going to allow not only GPS, but LTE connection, music, that sort of stuff. The way that they're doing it is they're completely separating it from the watch. They actually have a separate puck, essentially, that's going to have a headphone jack in it that clips onto your shirt. It's going to have LTE in it. It's going to be able to stream music. You're, and then you're going to control it from your watch. And then you can go and run with your watch and with this little clip-on device that has GPS and not have to bring your phone with you. But that's not all. The clip-on device also has a microphone and Alexa built in. Yep. And that's, again, a clever way of getting around this issue of you can't really build a smartwatch with GPS and have it last a reasonable amount of time. So – if you could think about doing that, something like that with a smart band or whatever, there are ways that Apple could potentially do GPS without having this abysmal battery life, but they might have to think outside the box and it might be a little more clunky of a solution just because battery technology is not there and, and location services just are such a drain on battery. Completely. Now I want to change gears. I want to talk about Apple Campus 2. I want to talk about the UFO. Okay. Now, we used to, on our site, have flyover videos with drones of, of the construction. Mm-hmm. What's been going on since we last took one of those? Well, uh, progress is coming along. Um, Apple had an event on their current campus back in March, and it's believed that that's going to be the last one they hold there. Um, if they continue to do March events, the expectation is by next March, uh, they'll be able to do it in their much larger uh, facility at the Spaceship Campus in Cupertino. 
Um, so it, progress is coming along nicely. Um, our own Daniel Aaron Dilger had a uh, nice little feature this week on, uh, I don't know how to pronounce their name. Is it Sedak? They're a German glassmaker. Um, they've only been around since 2007, um, spelled S-E-D-A-K. Um, but they are considered the leading manufacturer of uh, high-quality, large-format insulating and safety glass. And they, um, the exterior of Apple's Campus 2 is made up of these huge sheets of curved glass, which is one of the things that Steve Jobs was particularly proud of when he presented the design for Campus 2 uh, just a few weeks before he passed away, actually. Um, he pr- appeared before the Cupertino City Council and talked about how excited he was about this project and how there wasn't going to be a, a single piece of straight glass in the entire place. It was all going to be curved glass around the outside and on the inside of the ring as well. Um, and the exterior of the spaceship ring um, is going to have these uh, huge pieces of glass that are 46 feet long and more than 10 feet tall. And then on the inside of the ring, uh, they're going to be 36 feet long. And they're all going to be made by this German company that is an expert company in, in making this kind of glass. Uh, it's right. a one-of-a-kind building and a very unique construction. And, and their, their pitch, their, their contention is that large panes of glass are superior to small panes of glass because they save on having to frame it mm-hmm. and they save on large collection times to putting it up because you're just putting up one sheet. And in, in their analysis, it saves cost because you don't have to worry about having all of the, the aluminum or steel between all of the panes with their smaller panes. Right. It's more efficient in terms of energy conservation. It's, uh, it's a cleaner aesthetic. I mean, you remember a few years ago, the uh, very famous uh, Fifth Avenue Cube uh, that Apple has, the iconic entrance to that store. Uh, they totally rebuilt that thing, right? Yeah, it used to be made of you know something like 50 or 60 panes of glass, and they cut it down to way less than that. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but again, it was you know difficulties in glass manufacturing. They had to use a bunch of pieces of glasses, which had seams in it and things to hold it together. Apple didn't really like the aesthetic of it, and they redid it and made it with fewer panes of glass. Now, of course, it's very difficult to uh, make large pieces of glass like that. They're, they're, it's just physics at that point. They're more prone to break, crack, shatter, that sort of stuff. So uh, this partnership that Apple has with this German company um, is very interesting, um, just the level of effort that they had to go to to get this building the way that they want it. Yeah, it's, it's a... Uh the, the way that they're doing the bending is through something called a cold bending process and basically they bend individual panes before they laminate them and they're they're doing it because they heat the glass really hot and then when they cool them, it's it's the bending is during the cooling process. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this is, is it's a lot like auto safety glass, right? So with auto safety glass, you have two sheets bonded with an elastic plastic, uh, a PVB layer between – the two sheets of glass so that when something hits your windshield, for example, mm-hmm. instead of it showering you with glass chips, it um, it just cracks but is held in place by this plastic sheet between the two pieces of glass. Right. And, and that's safety glass. You don't actually get injured by it, right? And so all of these huge 46-foot sheets of glass are safety glass like that. It's kind of incredible, especially the tolerances they're achieving. You know, normally glass is like a three millimeter variance, plus or minus kind of thing. Right. Uh, because glass is, is essentially a liquid, right? Y- y- we see it as a solid. Right. But if you look at historical glass windows, you know, if you go to, to historic Williamsburg, Virginia, for example, Colonial Williamsburg, and you see the glass that's 200 years old, yeah. it is thicker at the bottom of the window panes than it is at the top because over the years, the glass has flowed to be thicker at the bottom. Gravity has had an impact. So – you know, for them to achieve this and retain a, a what, like a one-eighth of an inch tolerance, mm-hmm. plus or minus, is pretty darn incredible. On, on a 46-foot-long pane of glass, I mean, it's, I'm saying, it's just crazy. You know, they, they are – I think it's fair to say they are the apple of the glass manufacturing world. Yeah, um, some people in the comments were saying uh, what a uh, uh, commentary this is on uh, Corning and their ability to make glass. Obviously, a long storied history there and the fact that they were not um, uh, uh, selected for this project is uh, interesting on on the ability of this company uh, to make glass. I I wonder if that's in part because it's just a different uh, competency and a different focus, right? Corning has been – on on small stuff as on device screens, on cookware, on on smaller items, and Sedak exists solely to do these large sheets. Well, there there are multiple uh, Cornings though. 
Um, it's, yeah, there, there's true. the consumer one, but then there's industrial. Um, they're actually technically different companies, all from the same parent company. But um, you would think that some subsidiary or, or spinoff of Corning uh, would have been in contention for this, but yet Apple went with this German company. So, Well, that, that's the one thing we know about Apple is that they're willing to work with a, a new partner to do something to push the boundaries of what's possible. Mm-hmm. Right, whether it was the the making the unibody Mac out of milling a solid block of aluminum and then recycling the the chips, or you know the shavings, or or if it was the original iPod, for example, where trying to get the the curve and lamination of the original shape of the iPod to work, they they'll always seek out a new way to do things with a new manufacturer to support it. Let us talk iPhone Seven. Let's. Now I know we've been talking rumors for some time. And I, I fear that some of our listeners find it boring. Uh, my my only comment on that is that Apple as a company is is certainly not boring. You know, it's and, and that this this is one of the things I was talking about with a listener is the concern that that Apple's boring, right? I, I can't describe the company that's going to be killing off the headphone port on its flagship phone as boring, <laughs> right? You, you can be concerned about it, but boring isn't the word, right? The the company that told the FBI to jump in a lake is not a boring company, right? You know, the, the, the company that talks about how great its cloud services are, and yet we all are concerned about iCloud stability. Here's why people think of Apple as boring, That's because they boring, want to right? be, people want to be surprised. They want to have a product be announced and, uh, uh, they want it to be uh, not what they're expecting. So I'll give you a, uh, a comparison. Do you watch Game of Thrones? Uh, I do not. Okay, well, Game of Thrones is obviously a very popular TV show, and also a, it's based on a series of books, and I'm sure we have many yeah, listeners George that are familiar. R. R. Martin. Yes. Right, so one of the things that uh, uh, in Game of Thrones, there's a long-standing theory about, I won't spoil anything for anybody who's never listened to or never w- watched the oh, show. come on. Right? Neil, tell us but, what Jon Snow's name is. <laughs> there are a couple of characters uh, in, there is one specific character in the show whose parentage is not very clear, and there have been theories for a long time about a couple of characters uh, might actually uh, secretly be this character's parents, right? So it's very, I mean, it's very traditional if you read the books, uh, classic literature style of illusion and foreshadowing and those kind of things. And then now the TV show has gone ahead of the book, but anyhow, it revealed kind of who that this fan theory is right. And there were people that were angry that the fan theory was right because they, they just, they don't like the uh, process, they just like being surprised. You know, it's like, oh, what a if twist. If you be surprised, don't read the spoilers. Exactly. If you don't want to be surprised, don't read the spoilers. Don't go on the forums. Don't visit Apple Insider if you don't want to know what the new iPhone looks like. But Wait, wait, wait. You, the managing editor of <laughs> you just told people to not visit Apple Insider. I'm telling people not to visit Apple Insider if they... Uh, are really that upset about Apple being quote-unquote boring. The only reason Apple is boring is because there are leaks and websites like ours are devoted to satisfying the need for people to access those leaks. Apple is only boring because that information is out there, and when the phone is announced, you're going to know what it looks like and what its features are going to be. We've we've known, we've done this for years. How many times have we gone through the same cycle? Last year, we knew exactly what the new iPhone was going to look like, what its features were going to be, all that stuff. We, we had all that information ahead of time and i know that there are a lot of listeners who think that you know the rumor mill is or whatever but here's the thing the picture gets clearer as we get closer to the product's release and by the time they announce it we have 99.9 percent of the picture of what the product's going to be almost every single time there are a few exceptions one of those was the apple watch um, and one of those was the first iphone now you want to know how they kept those a secret because the product didn't launch right away Right now, when Apple announces a new iPhone, they launch it 10 days later, sometimes 15 days later, but that's it. It's out. Like, they've already been... The, the riff on on the boring stuff that I was quoting from uh, one of our Twitter folks that, that I follow, uh, Zach Chichi, who, who had this riff. And, and one of the cool things that he said, and you mentioned watch, was that I wouldn't call the company that sold a $10,000 smartwatch with a straight face right. boring. <laughs> exactly. It, it, there's nothing boring about this. What has made it boring is you are reading all the spoilers, 
and you want to be surprised. And rather than having a good story be told or a good product be released, whether you're a Game of Thrones fan or you're an Apple fan, if you're complaining about this stuff, you are the problem. You are the one that is wrong. (laughs) Okay. So on, on that note, we saw some dummy units of the iPhone 7 show up. Right. And the big surprise is that all of the dummy units of the alleged iPhone 7 models are in the precisely same colors as the iPhone 6S. Who knows? You know, when there's so many uh, leaks ahead of time on this kind of stuff uh, that allows Chinese companies to make knockoffs. I mean, if you remember last year at CES 2015, there were Apple Watch ripoffs that looked exactly like the Apple Watch available totally. for sale. $20 Android. Yeah, and I mean the those those were in the South Hall on the upstairs towards the very back. Don't discount the ability of Chinese knockoff companies to get a whiff of something and uh, and immediately start cranking out something in response to it. So whenever you see cases like this and stuff, sometimes they uh, most of the time they end up being legitimate, but sometimes it ends up being uh, parts from knockoff manufacturers. So the coloring I wouldn't get too worked up over just yet. Sometimes it's not just even it's not even knockoffs. It's just people may come on spec kind of thing. Right. You know, there there were at CES one year. There had been all those rumors leading up to CES about how the phone is going to change shape, mm-hmm. and so people started making cases for them, and people made dummy phones for those cases. And the, you know, you, you went to CES and you saw all the people that were conservative and smart and hadn't gone so far as to make all this stuff, and then you saw the poor guys with the sad trombone. Because they had gone forward and made the dummy cases and the, the actual ca- the enclosure cases for the dummy phones and everything, and they'd gone down this whole path for a thing that never was. There, are, there are rumors. We should say for those that don't know, there are rumors that the new iPhone may have a darker shade of space gray. So, uh, deep blue. Uh, well, I think that was a, kind of a mistake that came out. But if you look back at the the darker phones that Apple has been doing for the last few years, at first it was a space black or just a, a charcoal gray or whatever you want to call it on the iPhone 5. Um, and then they went with a lighter shade on the iPhone 5S. Um, and they've had a lighter shade on the 6 and 6S as well. Now, Apple uses the term space gray, but they're not really consistent with space gray. Um, there, there is no Pantone color named space gray. If you compare a space gray uh, Apple Watch Sport to a space gray iPhone 6S, they are not even remotely the same color. The watch is a much darker shade. Um, and there are some people like myself who uh, prefer the darker color. Um, and the rumor is that the iPhone 7 or whatever it's called may come in a darker shade. Now, there were some cases that leaked this week that showed it in a shade basically similar to the iPhone 6S. Um, I wouldn't get too worked up over that at this point. It could be the camera. It could be uh, a fake part. It could be anything. But, um, you know, we just piece it together as we get it. So next rumor, 14% larger battery than the 6S. Yeah, this came from a, um, a French uh, leaker who um, uh, has had some accurate information in the past. He said that this information came from a reliable source, but not 100%. So take it with a grain of salt. But uh, one of the expectations is, as we talked about earlier, shrinking the parts inside the phone. Um, even though the new phone is expected to be the thinnest iPhone ever, uh, by ditching the physical space needed for the headphone jack and also by shrinking maybe the space needed for the processor and other components, Apple could squeeze in a slightly larger battery. The rumor is it's going to be 14% bigger. 7 Plus mock-up includes the smart connector and the dual-lens camera. Yeah, it's uh, rumored that uh, there's going to be a fancy high-end dual-lens camera that could allow potentially... Um, some optical zoom capabilities and higher quality photos and stuff like that. Um, right. And then the smart connector on the back is interesting because uh, back in April, Logitech released a smart connector charger for the iPad Pro, which now lets us know that we can accept power through the smart connector as well as connected to accessories. So I could see the smart connector on a larger iPhone being used to allow you to charge it while, for example, uh, using lightning headphones. Yeah. Now, the... The, the, there's some question, you know, some people have talked to me about the idea that the, the dual camera thing for just the larger model is unusual. My, my response to that has always been that historically the plus-sized phone has had a different camera, whether it's had the optical sta- you know, the, the stabilization features or other things. It's always been a slightly different unit. It just hasn't looked different externally. 
Yep. The only way you can get hardware optical image stabilization on the iPhone is to buy the uh, plus-sized phone. The standard-sized phone does not have any hardware optical image stabilization because it doesn't have the space to do it. So this this seems still plausible or not? I mean, I didn't. I was kind of surprised at first that they would do that, but uh, that seems to be the direction they're going this year based on the leaks, that they're going to put more distance between the the smaller iPhone and the larger one. Um, if you look at Apple's history and products, this isn't exactly unprecedented. Um, for example, the only way that you can get a dedicated discrete graphics card in a MacBook is to buy a 15-inch model. Um, it's just physics. You know, what can you fit in in terms of the space? This is one that we talked about with Shane Cole back when we had podcasted with him months back, and it was the the notion that Intel uh, was going to supply the modem orders for the iPhone 7. So mm-hmm. our story from Mikey says that Intel could see a $1.5 billion boost from Apple iPhone 7 modem orders. Shane's position at the time was there was no way that Apple would purchase from Intel, that their Intel just wasn't caught up enough in the market. But here we go. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it certainly uh, seems to be pointing that way. Apple's been buying from Intel for the phone for a while, but indirectly. Intel acquired, um, uh, what's the name of the company? I'm drawing a blank right now. I can't find it. I'm sorry. Um, All right, carry on. So there was an acquisition, and they they have gained the ability to do this. So So this is not completely unprecedented either, right? Apple never wants to rely on a sole supplier. They, they got burned way back on the old G4 PowerPC chips and got burned again on the sole supplier for G5 when, when IBM couldn't produce mobile G5s. So they are done with having a sole supplier, right? Right. Um, the company that, that Intel bought that uh, Apple's been using in the phone is Infineon. And they've used Infineon chips in um, past iPhone models. So it's not entirely unprecedented. Um, for but and Infineon was RAM at the old in the old days, right? I believe they make baseband chips as well. Okay, so they have been in iPhones in the past, so this isn't that crazy of an outcome. Um, uh, Intel bought Infineon back in 2010 uh, for 1.4 billion. So uh, that that was a kind of a backdoor way of Intel to kind of get in on the supply chain. But you know, as you said earlier. I, I, Apple's going to go with the best supplier and the most reliable. One thing that a lot of people don't realize when it comes to buying their phone is it's actually a mishmash of parts, different displays, different even uh, companies making the processors. And there's different levels of variance in between those products, especially when they come from different manufacturers. Apple just has a set range that the, pro- that the, uh, that the parts have to fall within in order to qualify to be good enough for the iPhone. And so with any development of technology and, and production of parts, there's always going to be a failure rate. Um, a certain number of uh, items are just going to have to be thrown away or maybe they can find another use for them that wasn't the primary use as has been done in the past. But what Apple does is they diversify their supply chain as much as they can to get multiple companies not only competing to bid, but also in the event that one of the partners that they have can't produce what they're expecting, they can fall back on another. And this has happened many times uh, with faulty parts from certain suppliers where Apple just kind of pushed them out of the supply chain or maybe took a, a lower percentage. Some just don't have the yield rate of others in terms of their ability to put out products. So if you buy an iPhone, it might have a screen made by LG. It might have a screen made by Sharp. It might have a processor from Samsung. It might have a processor from Taiwan Semiconductor. Um, There are some parts that are only made by one manufacturer, but many of the parts in your phone are made by a number of manufacturers. Definitely. So what's going to be interesting to see is what this does to Qualcomm and if, if it really is a 1.5 billion lift, and if it is 50% or more of the phones that are getting Intel bass bands. Yeah, I mean, um, Intel's been in trouble for a while um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and well, they missed the boat to... on having the Atom power the iPhone, so. <laughs> they, they missed out on the that whole low-power the chip. They missed out on the whole low-power chip revolution. Um, certainly, they've been making strides in recent years to get back, but... Again, uh, their delays and, and missed deadlines in producing chips have hurt them and, and have indirectly hurt Apple, where Apple is in a position where they can't really release new Macs until new Intel chips come out. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. So on that note, I want to bring up a killer deal where you said you know can't release new MacBooks. At the same time, we have MacBooks that are on sale through our, our 
great sponsors at, at B&H and others. So for the next seven days, Apple Insider readers can grab Apple's 2015 12-inch MacBook, the 1.3 gigahertz 8 gig model, for the lowest price ever offered at $999, plus free expedited shipping and a free copy of Parallels 11 and no sales tax outside of New York. And this is the lowest price we've ever seen for an Apple-authorized reseller or even a non-authorized reseller. Uh, B&H is offering basically an instant savings of $550 on the Space Gray early 2015 MacBook, which is quite cool. So go to our website. The link will be in the show notes and get a MacBook if you need one. Now, you've been running the iOS 10 beta, and you've been running that on a 6S. Is that right? Correct. And just overall, how have you been getting on with it? Uh, beta 2 is much better than beta 1. It's still buggy, still deal with a lot of crashes and stuff, but it's not as frustrating as it was on beta 1. Right. So the message to our listeners is people, don't run the betas. Yeah, don't install this if on your If you care about your mother, if you care about your family, don't run the betas. Yeah, I mean, it was so bad that I would have switched back to my iPhone SE running iOS 9 if I could still wear my Apple Watch, but you cannot run a watch with uh, Watch OS 3 connected to iOS 9. It requires iOS 10. They both have to be updated. Yeah. So one of the features that Roger wrote about on our site is the iOS 10 beta opening up live streaming support for apps. Yeah, uh, this is something that uh, is... uh, interesting because it allows you to live stream what you're doing in an app, but it also allows apps to view live streaming content. So uh, one of the examples uh, that they uh, cited this year at WWDC was somebody maybe playing a game on their Apple TV and then somebody on another Apple TV or whatever device streaming uh, this person as they play. These so-called Let's Play videos have become very popular on YouTube in recent years. Which is huge, dude. They started out as YouTube, you know, pre-recorded stuff with uh, guys like PewDiePie and all that. Um, but well, now you, you it's used started. to grab an Elgato adapter and pipe your Mac directly, pipe your console into your Mac and record that way. Right? That was the way that you did YouTube at videos of gameplay in the old days. I'm losing you. So in the old days, when you used YouTube... You'd, you'd take your console, you'd connect your console to your Mac with an adapter from Elgato, and uh, and then you'd get your, your video going into your Mac and record it and then upload after the fact to YouTube. These days, if you had something like live broadcast or you use Twitch, you, you just start streaming it, right? Right. And Twitch is a very popular option for that. And now, um, you know, with the latest Xbox One and PlayStation 4, they have streaming for services like Twitch or even in-house stuff built into the console. Um, I, I think I don't I don't really understand the appeal of this personally. Um, I, I've heard that it's a lot of uh, tends to be uh, younger kids maybe who can't afford to buy the latest games, but they get some level of pleasure out of watching people play the game because they can't, you know, fork out the sixty dollars because they don't have a job or whatever. Um, whoa, 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 Neil, do you ever watch sporting events? <laughs> I, I've heard this comparison. You watch hockey, right? I've heard this comparison, and I do not believe it to be the same. Um, if that's the way it is for other people, that's fine. <laughs> professional sports uh, and professional video games are very different. Um, and I appreciate the athleticism of professional sports, and I do like to watch it. Um, I do not understand the appeal of professional video games other than in small doses. I know that you know some games like Dota and StarCraft and all that are uh, huge. You know They sell out of ranges of people want to watch this stuff, and if you're into that, that's fine. Um, I'm not really interested in that personally. But Apple's support in this in iOS 10 and tvOS 10 and all that is interesting because not only will it appeal to that market of people who um, apparently like to watch people play video games a lot, um, but also can be used for other applications. Um, for example, one of the um, uh, the ways that it was found in the code was with the uh, Swift uh, programming thing, where you could share it with someone that way. So um, yeah, it's 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 neat, and it'll have a lot of value beyond games. At least I hope. It depends on how developers implement it. Yeah, well, I, I do like the idea of it for tutorials for things like Swift or or learning that way. But you know, when it comes to the gaming thing, I, I think. We, we ought to talk with Victor Agreda Jr. Do you, do you know Victor? Mm-hmm. He was the uh, the former editor-in-chief of TUAW, the unofficial Apple web blog, before right. they shut down. And he has a side thing doing Angry Dad Gamer where he, he plays and, and puts it on Twitch. And he's, he's certainly not the young spring chicken that you're talking about. And it might be interesting to talk to him get his perspective on this stuff. 
Yeah, uh, I, I mean, certainly if somebody has a character that they play, like a PewDiePie type of person, um, you know, that that has an appeal to some audience. Um, but from what I've seen, most of the people that are into stuff like that tend to be a little younger than I am. Now, PewDiePie, uh, this last week, I don't know if we want to talk, this is sort of off the beaten path, we didn't plan for this one, but PewDiePie was a part of a bunch of people who was revealed last week to be taking payment for endorsements and stuff. Did you see that story? Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you can't really be surprised, right? Have you ever seen these videos on YouTube where they get like a quote-unquote haul, where they show a bunch of products that they were sent for free and just like show them off and stuff? It's it's a lawless land on YouTube. It's very bizarre. Yeah. So, uh, you know, our, our own Apple and Setter policy is that we uh, we get review units, we uh, work with the, the companies to ship them back, and sometimes are told to keep them, but but only after we've offered to send them back kind of thing. Yeah, we, we we're, we're not taking sponsorship dollars. No, and, and if anything is an advertisement that you read on Apple Insider, it's clearly labeled as such. Uh, our editorial policy is not to trick you or anything like that. We certainly have a lot of deals, and we have uh, our price guide, which is a service to readers and saves them money. Um, and But I think it's pretty clear to everybody that when you go to our price guide that we're partnering with these companies – um, and when you buy through us, it helps us out and keeps the lights on, and it helps you because it saves you some money. So the way we see it is that's a win for everybody. But we're, we're very clear about what's sponsorship and what's not. We do not do paid reviews, no. No. Thank you. I, I wanted to make sure we got that out there. We had the opportunity. Correct. Uh, back to the rumors. Back to the things you came to listen for. Uh, there are photos that surfaced of alleged lightning ear pods. Yeah, uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, the on leaks guy that I mentioned earlier claims they're fake. He claims it's a third party thing. Um, if mm. it's a third party thing, it's clearly unsanctioned because they're such a clear ripoff of Apple's earpods that it would be, you know, uh, design patent infringement. Um, yeah. But I mean, yeah, it gives you an idea of what lightning earpods could look like. It's traditional earpods with a lightning cable at the end. Whoop de doo. Yeah, and and honestly, the overmold on the lightning connector looks a little fishy to me. It's a little thick and a little big. Um, well, it's but, it's got curved shoulders, and nothing that Apple's ever done has had curved shoulders. Yeah, exactly. I don't know um, what they're going to do with this. You know, the, lightning is a weird thing. Where, for example, when it first came out, it was, uh, and I, you're more familiar with this than I am, but uh, it was so snug in the connector that you couldn't really use a dock. Because it would just like pick up the dock anytime you wanted to pick it up, um, and I know they had to fine tune the latches. Yeah. So Apple has made it now that I think. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe manufacturers can choose the latches. They can make them more snug or less. Well, it's it's the latches are on the inside of the shell for the connector in the phone or the iPad. What they're doing is well, there are divots on the, the connector. Side. Yeah. There are divots in the side of the connector, and they you you can have them with the divots for it to latch, or if you were doing a dock. You could have them with uh, with with sort of a straight recess that isn't the divot, so that there is no there, there's some friction, but there's no actual latching. Yes, I'm familiar with this because I actually sanded out the divots on a lightning cable to use with my elevation dock. Because there you go. Once lightning shipped, it was completely pointless because you couldn't remove it. But this happened with 30 pin as well. It used to be, if you remember, old iPod connectors, the 30 pin. It would have the little buttons on the side that you could press that would release the 30 pin. Um, then later and versions along of it. about 2009, they forbid using the side button latches. So uh, I, I bring that up just because uh, with the design of this lightning port or whatever, you would have to think that Apple would definitely want something with some latches. Uh, a 3.5 millimeter traditional headphone jack is pretty snug, isn't going anywhere. Uh, certainly, if you're going to connect headphones to your iPhone through lightning, you're going to want those to be pretty snug as well. Yeah, well, they wouldn't use the button release like the old 30 pin. No. They, they do the, the strong yeah, divots for the Just the strong divots, yeah. 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 So, next piece of news Open Casting Call begins for the first original Apple TV series, Planet of the Apps. Oh, uh, who cares? Well, here, here's why I care. I don't care one bit about Planet of the Apps yet. I mean, it's interesting in terms of it being a series that covers apps and their creators. And we know that I love to interview people and talk about what they're making. We do that here on the show all the time. But what's interesting to me is the notion that Apple TV gets Apple-produced content. Yeah. Um, I can't see them making a big play into the original content business. Um, this is probably well, – you, you and I were chatting about this during the week, right? I, I sent you a link that talked about how Apple could take over the music industry again with streaming, and they could potentially take over the – you know kill Netflix with this kind of thing, right? They won't. 
Well, you, you said that, and you said that they won't because also uh, antitrust. Right. I mean, they couldn't even enter the book market without having an antitrust lawsuit slapped on them. They weren't even, you know, I thought I thought antitrust required a company to control the market, but <laughs> Apple doesn't even have to do that. Uh, All they have to do is enter a market. Yeah. The it, it, it's interesting for me in that I, I I like the idea of disintermediation of can you know cables and 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 the uh, TV providers as they currently exist. So having more streaming, more Netflix, and and Apple running some of this is not a terrible thing to me. No, the more content we have available, is the better. But I mean, it's it's content overload at this point. Like, um, for example, you have an Amazon Prime subscription. Do you watch any of their original content on Amazon? Uh, occasionally, I've never watched anything on there, and I know that some of it's oh, critically come acclaimed. Come on, you, you need to see the Man in the High Castle. See, I, exactly. People talk about that. I've seen ads for it. Uh, they won an Emmy with um, uh, Transparent. The, yeah, Transparent. Yeah, that one. Um, and you know, they have other original content on there. Uh, like uh, I think it was the sixth season of Community, the show on NBC. Was that was up, Yahoo? It was on Yahoo. You can't even get Yahoo on Apple TV. My wife Wrong. and I. Went, Wrong. You lie. Well, you couldn't before. Maybe you can now. You lie like a dog. Yahoo was on the Apple TV third generation, my friend, and I watched it on the third gen. You watched Community Season 6 on your Apple TV without using a computer? Correct. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. It's the, the only one of the, the ones you've named so far that has not done it is Amazon. And to, to watch Amazon, I either used the, the built-in Vizio smart TV stuff or the Fire Stick when I had it or just uh, airplaying it to the Apple TV. I, I used but to do Yahoo, this crap. Yahoo is, a, is a definitely available in – it was by default in the, uh, the Apple third gen, the Apple TV third gen, and it's probably an app on the App Store for the fourth. Okay. Well, then if I can do it, then maybe I'll have to check it out. But I've done this crap in the past where I'm trying to watch something and I plug a HDMI cable from my Mac into my TV and then there's like a weird lag between the audio and then frame rate stutters and then the ads and then I got to get up and hit the trackpad to get past something. It's a nightmare. No, 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 no. I've never I've never done that to watch content like this. Well, good. Then I hope that I can watch the sixth season of Community because it aired like two years ago now and I never watched it. You'll be disappointed, to be honest. That's okay. There's, I mean, there's too much content out there. To, it wasn't. I'm, I'm only like four episodes into the new season of House of Cards. I just didn't get around to watching it. Um, so it's one of the reasons I hate uh, all this like on demand releases rather than having a schedule for something to come out. Like when Game of Thrones comes out weekly, I know I'm going to get spoiled if I don't watch it. So I sit down on Sunday night and I watch it within like an hour of it airing so I can actually go on the Internet without having to be ruined. It's when content is just out there, the Netflix release style where it's just like, hey, here's 13 episodes of it. It's too overwhelming. Like I can't I, I can't manage that. I feel like it's just too much content. I, I will binge watch and I like that I can. What I find is that I can really only do two episodes at a time at a sitting at night before, you know, the, the person I'm watching with falls asleep and we end up having to rewatch the episode. Exactly. I get so annoyed by that, too. We are old. <laughs> There's no other way to put it, Neil. We're old. There's too much content out there. It's not a bad thing. If Apple wants to get into the content game, I wouldn't complain, but they're not going to take on Netflix in any serious way. I can't see you that know, happening. I, well, I would like for there to be more good content, right? I mean, the old, the old reason that I quit cable was the Bruce Springsteen song, 57 Channels and Nothing On. Right. I mean, you, you could find law and order everywhere in the world, but nothing good on. Are we lacking for good content right now? Really? I mean, the only, if you're uh, watching bad content, the only reason is because you have bad taste. Oh, OK. So you're going to start giving me content recommendations outside of Game of Thrones. And yeah, uh, sure. Because I've I feel like I exhausted Netflix and I sort of exhausted Hulu for a while. I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard it's great. Uh, right now on sale on iTunes is, or at least it was yesterday. I bought it for five dollars. Ex Machina. Want to sit down and watch it? I hear I it's a fantastic. The I See, saw I, that. Yeah. I I don't have the time to watch a lot of this stuff. But I heard it was good for five dollars. I picked it up. I'm going to sit down and watch it this weekend. But there's so much content out right now. Are you kidding? I mean, it's your own You're fault. Start sharing. Start sharing the recommendations, brother. It is your own fault if you go to the theaters and watch Adam Sandler and Pixels like that. The, blaming that bad was not content. a theater movie. No, that was that was a, a, a casual download. If, if you went and saw the new Independence Day and paid fifteen dollars for a ticket for that, you have no one to blame but yourself. Didn't see it. That's going to be a download. That's that's you know, there are things that are worth going to the theater for. And then there are things that are, are, are worth staying at home for. 
casual kind of mail. What the hell else, you know? There, we have Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic for a reason. You can check and see when something's well reviewed. And this, you bring up a valuable point. There was a great, uh, uh, so there's a Reddit channel called Data is Beautiful, right? Or Internet is Beautiful, one of these. And the there was someone who had plotted the exact point in Robert De Niro's career where he stopped giving, <laughs> where he stopped caring, and and you could pinpoint the exact moment where all of his good movies were. And then all of the bad movies where he no longer cares. What is it? The, uh, uh, the old Simpsons episode where they freeze it and they go, you, you can see the exact point here where his heart is broken. Yes, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and then they replayed it over and over again. Yes. Yeah, Robert De Niro, uh, after uh, Taxi Driver and uh, Raging Bull, um, you know, I guess you could say Goodfellas or maybe Casino, but... Uh, Holy moly! Did he start making some bad movies after that? Yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at this chart because I saw that and it was really brilliant. I mean, you know, why why would you care about Dirty Grandpa, for example? <laughs> Just don't go see it. If you're complaining yeah, about exactly. content right now, I mean, if you have a cable subscription, if you have a Netflix subscription, if you have an Amazon Prime, if you pay for Hulu, if you live within 20 minutes of a movie theater. Uh, you have so much content available to you right now, and so much of it is good. Why people waste time watching bad content and then complain about it, I will never understand. Yeah. So so the exact moment, the exact year in which Robert De Niro stopped doing good work and began cashing in on low-quality, big-budget films, 2002. Two, no, it was way before that. Come on. Uh, well, let's take a look. So he said that here that uh, illustrator James Chapman placed the Rotten Tomatoes scores of De Niro's films averaged together by the year they were released on a scatter plot and discovered that the iconic actor has only risen above the 50% mark twice since 2002. Mm-hmm. And so let's see here is this plot. So there was, you know, he did Godfather 2 and Raging Bull. He won two Academy Awards. He had The Deer Hunter. He had Goodfellas. He had Heat and Casino and Jackie Brown. And at age 59 in 2002, he did Shark Tale, Meet the Fockers, Analyze That, and Dirty Grandpa. <laughs> no, he didn't do to Meet the Dirty Grandpa in 2000. No, no, no. But the, a, after 2002, I, right? I, Dirty Grandpa was a 2016 release. But all of those others came after that 2002 point and were below the 50% line on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't remember why. I think I had like a free ticket or something. But I'm looking at his IMDb right now. And in 2004, I went and saw the movie God Send in theaters. And it was one of the worst things I have ever sat through in my entire life. It had uh, Rebecca Romaine and Greg Kinnear in it, where they have their son cloned uh, after he dies to bring him back. And like, which is a common science fiction trope anyway. It's not the right. first time we've seen that. And and Robert Robert De Niro plays like a doctor that like d- you know is playing God or whatever. Uh, and it was it was one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And I don't know that I've seen a Robert De Niro movie since then. I, I think I at that point I just gave up on his uh, entire career. Mm. Let's talk about something positive. Apple donated a million dollars to a Chinese NGO, non-governmental organization, to assist with flood relief efforts. So right now the the Yellow River, the Yangtze River, is is undergoing a huge flood after heavy rains. And, and millions of people are having problems with this. They're, they're devastated by it. And so Tim Cook posted to Chinese social network Weibo, our thoughts are with those devastated by the flooding along the Yangtze River. And it's not just the thoughts. They, they put forth uh, about $1.6 in financial aid to assist responders. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Have I got that right? Yeah. This is, this is the apple I like. The, the apple that's not just concerned with making things that improve people's lives, but also helping improve people's lives on a, in a real impact. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, I don't see why anybody could have an issue with that. You know, it's a horrible uh, things happened and, and Apple's doing what they can to help. And that's great. Okay. So we, we mentioned briefly Alexa with the, the, I know we're jumping around all over the place, whatever, bear with me guys. The last story, the, the, we mentioned Alexa as a part of the pebble device, Alexa is becoming this bigger thing, and it's interesting because – so right now in the home space, connected home space, we've got Works with Nest. We've got Apple HomeKit stuff. We've got IFTTT, and we've got things that work with Amazon Alexa. And more and more, I'm seeing this crossover between things that are HomeKit that are also beginning to work with Alexa. Now, you can't really count Philips Hue because Philips Hue works with every single thing there is. Right. 
you know, they own 75% of the light bulb space. Good for them. They're great. But iDevices, which make a thermostat, uh, indoor and outdoor smart plugs that plug into your outlets, um, and a really cool thing, which is the light bulb adapter. Instead of buying the light bulb, you screw this into your light socket and then screw your traditional light bulb into it. Yeah, that's cool. And it makes your bulb into a smart bulb. Um, so they now work with Amazon Alexa. So you you go ahead and sign into Alexa via your iDevices app on your iPhone, and now Alexa can control your iDevices things in your house too. Yeah, I mean, you can't even do, uh, at least in the second beta, uh, Hey Siri on Mac OS Sierra. Meanwhile, uh, you look at Alexa, and it has a seven-array microphone thing that can pick up your voice from anywhere in the room and hear it over music and stuff like that. So for those reasons, the ease of use, the accessibility, and the instant response time, Alexa is really starting to beat out Siri when it comes to controlling HomeKit. I love uh, my Apple Watch and using Siri with it, but I've talked about it many times when I tell it to watch TV or something like that with a scene that I've created. It's like a five second delay before it actually happens. And then I got to dig for my phone and I got to do that. Having yeah. Alexa, the Amazon Echo, whatever in your house um, with this um, uh, array of microphones that can hear you from anywhere and, and works just, uh, you know, the way that you would expect it to uh, has really given Amazon a leg up in this uh, smart home space. Amazon's still early days, right? They still have a limited number of things that they truly support, although there are tons of, of skills that have been added by third parties, hackers and such. But the cool thing for me is is not that I want to go all in on Alexa only or that I want to go all in on HomeKit only. It's that I can go all in on HomeKit only and that many of my things, I have a second entry point via Alexa. So I can decide if I want to use the phone, if I want to use Siri, if I want to use the home app that's in iOS 10, or if I just want to speak out loud and Alexa will pick it up for me. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's good to have options there. This this multiple entry points into controlling my stuff feels more natural to me. Yeah, I can agree with that. And and that's really my goal is that, you know, this connected home stuff begins to work when you know, people ask me all the time, what's the first device you should buy? And I go, well, well the one that's going to solve your problem, right? What, what's the most annoying thing that you have to deal with all day? Is it turning on the light switch or is it setting the thermostat? You and I were talking about this before the show. I'm traveling right now. And I was able to remotely disable my thermostat so I'm not cooling the house when I'm not there. Right. Right? What, what's what's going to increase your convenience? What's going to do things for you? And so, you know, like when we had Carly Noblock on and her thing was having her her blinds close when it was the midpoint of noon so that her kitchen wasn't hot from the sun. Right. Right. It's, it's finding that one thing and making it more useful to you. And if you have multiple ways of controlling it, whether it's triggers and action sets and rules or simple commands by saying, Hey, Alexa, close the blinds. Right. It's those kinds of things that, that make it meaningful. Yeah. I, I, uh, it's an exciting time. It's still emerging. Um, it's anybody's game, but I have to think that uh, Amazon Echo and Alexa have a leg up right now in terms of ease of use and compatibility that, uh, over Apple. I, I I disagree about the compatibility. There are more HomeKit devices than there are ones compatible with Alexa at this time, but it's it's changing so fast that that could shift next month. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have a parting thought, Neil? Well, we have something to- you really want to leave our listeners with. Well, we have to mention Pokemon Go before we go. Oh, okay. Take it away. Tell me about Pokemon Go. <laughs> well, uh, the reason we have to mention it is um, I'm sure if, if you're listening to this, you're probably familiar. But if you're not uh, in just a week on the market, it has already become the most popular mobile game ever. Um, data tracking found that uh, more than 20 million people played it in a single day. It's it's more popular than than Twitter on people's iPhones. People are playing this so much. And it's been an interesting story because the way that the game is played is it requires you to actually go out in the physical world and go to physical locations to pick up Pokeballs and to find these monsters. But it also has an augmented reality element to it, which uh, is the part that I'm most interested in because we talk a lot on this show about virtual reality. But as I've said many times, I think augmented reality is really where the future of that technology is going to go. Virtual reality will have its place as video games and stuff like that, but Augmented reality is something that can have all kinds of practical implications um, from your phone to wearable glasses to anything else like that um, and is a pretty exciting technology. And, and I think that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we're going to look back on Pokemon Go as kind of a quaint, 
um, uh, but still important turning point for augmented reality technology. Um, because for most people, this is their first uh, um, interaction with it. You hold up your phone, and it looks like the Pokemon is in your living room or on the ground or whatever. Um, and people are posting screenshots of it, and everybody's kind of wowed by this simple technology. And certainly, augmented reality has been around for a while. Companies do things with, like, you know, where you could put, like, cards, playing cards in front of your webcam on your computer, even before we had, you know, fancy mobile phones that could do this stuff. And it would put a 3D character on there, and you'd see it on the screen. It was like, wow, this is neat. Well, this is the next extension of augmented reality, and while it's a small and not even necessary part of the game, you can actually turn it off, um, it still, I think, uh, is a sign of things to come where augmented reality is going to become a more pervasive part of our lives and a more integral part of our lives as well. Um, but the physical element of the game, too, requiring you to go out in the world, walk to locations, um, has obviously health benefits of people you know, getting off their butt and doing stuff, but also uh, people being stupid, driving around their car or walking into traffic, staring at their phone. And so police are putting out But, but this, uh, is, this uh, is a good thing, statement you know, saying that people you know, well, should be just looking at Craigslist, right? Looking at Craigslist, there are people who are putting themselves out there for $20 an hour to be your Pokemon trainer. <laughs> And when the rest of the world learns that you can make 20 U.S. dollars an hour catching Pokemon, economy is going to explode, man. There's a lot of people that think that this might be a short-term fad, and that may end up being the case. But I, I think, if anything, this will probably be more of an Angry Birds type thing where it may not last you know, five years. But I think for the next two, three years, you could see Pokemon Go continuing to be popular for a number of reasons. Number one, they're still trying to roll it out internationally and they're working slowly and they've been adding countries over the last couple of weeks. But number two, there are so many features that need to be added that they've promised, including the ability to trade monsters and you know to upgrade things and do all that kind of stuff. So they can keep adding to the game and expanding it, which will, can, will retain its popularity at least over the next few months and maybe a couple of years and not don't forget that the pokemon series has been around for a very long time too so this is a franchise that people are very intimately familiar with uh and i don't think that this game's going anywhere i don't see it being a fad like two weeks from now that nobody's playing anymore maybe two years from now but i think it's going to stay around for the next uh, for the next few months at least one of the interesting things that I've been watching is is what this means for businesses and the impact that it has on different types of establishments. So, so first of all, there's the the inappropriate response, which is that that Arlington National Cemetery and the Holocaust Museum were both upset that people were catching Pokemon in those properties. You know, the the idea of waiting to see a demonstration at, in the Holocaust about or a, uh, an exhibit in the Holocaust about gas chambers and having a Pokemon whose whose attack is gassing poison gas is inappropriate yes it is right? highly inappropriate and 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 catching pokemon in and among arlington national cemetery among the graves of of uh deceased so soldiers is inappropriate and but on the upside of of you know what's what's the positive aspect of what you can do with this is that there are pokey beacons and you can put a beacon that attracts or or sets up a gym for example at an at an establishment and you can give discounts to people who come to your establishment to get pokemon you know so if you're a restaurant you can offer 4 dollars off a meal or something if people are coming to flock to get pokemon um and that seems really smart you know, especially if you're doing all of these things, if you have Apple Pay going, if you have Pokemon going, if you have all of this stuff, you you, you become a destination. Right. The, and that the seems cool. data in and the game like has actually hook. been crowdsourced by Ingress, which was a previous game from uh, Niantic, the company behind uh, Pokemon Go. Um, and it allowed people to kind of tag locations. And so they have this huge database of locations around the world uh, from people playing this game, Ingress. And what's interesting about it is, you know, you may have a memorial down the street from you or a park or uh, some sort of a landmark or a destination that you've never noticed or paid attention or thought about before. But now by requiring people to go there to play this game, it's actually having people kind of learn about their neighborhood and explore it. Totally. You know, one of the cool things is, is it, I mean, in terms of business, is that it looks as if it's going to be possible for for companies to sponsor different Pokemon kind of thing. So so you could end up going to a destination like McDonald's in order to get the next Pokemon creature. Yeah, people and people are being drawn to locations because of things going on there. So you can see where people are now like meeting up and you'll get dozens of people 
uh, together at a location because it showed up on the game. So it's pretty neat. Um, uh, obviously, play it's really safely. Interesting when, uh, it's, it's really interesting when computers or the game is controlling the humans, right? <laughs> Directing right. them where to go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, uh, I think it's great. I think that with the more we blur the lines between reality and the virtual, the more we can bring people together and connect people. I think there's a lot of potential with augmented reality and with gamifying things like this. Um, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, I, I mean, the future is one where you're either directing a computer what to do or going to be controlled and directed by a computer for what to do. <laughs> well, that's the more dystopian view of it, but... Well... <laughs> You know, you've got Swift Playgrounds where you can teach the computer what to do, or you've got Pokemon Go where you can be told what to do. <laughs> I have a strange worldview on this stuff, people. It's okay. Well, this is the Apple Insider Podcast, fantastic episode 77. Joining me was Neil Hughes. Neil, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can read my musings at appleinsider.com, and you can find me on Twitter at this is Neil N-E-I-L. And I'm Victor Marks, and I'm at VMarks on Twitter. I occasionally write things at Apple Insider. And if Pokemon Go becomes the operating system of the future, uh, the basis of which Skynet is, <laughs> we'll tell you all about it in 2020 on the Apple Insider Podcast. 